0: Welcome to the Queen of the Sciences podcast, conversations between a theologian and her dad. I'm your host, Sarah Henlicky wilson
1: And I am Paul R. Henlicky.
0: of the sacrament of Holy Communion. So it wasn't exactly our intention last time to go right into the weeds of disciplinary issues, but that is where our conversation took us. So in this one, we're going to focus more on what it actually is that we're talking about, the doctrine rather than the discipline regarding Holy Communion. Uh, This is a well-established area of uh, cross-confessional dispute and crossfire, as it were. So we're just going to plunge right in. Dad um what's your what's your favorite place to start with this the doctrine of what exactly it is holy communion
1: Yeah uh, you know I'm with Luther it is the body and blood of our lord Jesus Christ given to us for us to eat and drink and so it, for me it is an est latin it is not a significat it signifies That doesn't mean that there's no signification. That doesn't mean there's no symbolism, uh, which is actually important to the integrity of the performance of the Lord's Supper. Uh, But if you're asking the ontological question, what is it? I answer, it is the body and blood of our Lord Jesus Christ given for us to eat and drink.
0: So you're quoting there from the small catechism, I presume?
1: Yeah, I didn't just make that up.
0: <laughs> well, your so your implied contrast immediately was the zwinglian side. So let's let's start with that. You you contrasted est with significat. So why why is that the issue at at uh, at hand? And should we learn the word aleosis? And should it be a major part of our life and our vocabulary?
1: Uh huh. Yeah. It's it has to do with an issue we've discussed briefly on and off uh, uh, for a year or so. About the difference between the sign and the thing signified, and how theology is different from philosophy precisely on this question. In ordinary language, one of the virtues of signs, that is to say, words or vocables, is that they're not the thing itself, that they point away from themselves to something else. When I say, uh, for example, right now, our barn cat is uh, chasing mice. You can't, from those words, you don't see my barn cat. And but you, but you have a sign, the word barn cat, right? You have the sign, which allows you in your mind to file through a lot of memories, a lot of images, uh, uh, to uh, sort out the different between bobcats and barn cats and domestic cats, right, you, the sign wor- works precisely because it's not identical with the thing signified.
0: So the, the saying of the word is not, it's not a magic spell that conjures up the reality of piwacket, which is the cat's right. name, right, right in the room with me. But it does, it does create some kind of reality in my mind that's meaningful enough that it functions in a highly effective way.
1: In fact, no, communication would be impossible if signs were identical with the things signified, right? Because then the only way you could understand my saying the barn cat chases mice would be literally to be transported across the world from Tokyo to Catawba and look at the cat in the barn. And, ah, now I know what you're talking about, right? You right, know, right, right, right. That is exactly the difference between sign and things signified. Uh, that uh, makes language work for us ordinarily in natural life and philosophy.
0: So the absence of the thing is actually the key value in a word.
1: That you can speak of things in their absence, exactly. And that's what significat means. The sign signifies something other than itself. It points away from itself. Now that is a kind of a baseline truth. I mean, that has to be acknowledged. Signs signify. They point away from themselves to something in extra mental reality that we are all referred to, right? Mm -hmm. Uh, But Luther says, and I think this is quite right, that the word of God is not an empty sign, uh, but it communicates the things signified. There's a unification in the word of God, of the sign and the things signified. So, for example, Jesus does not signify the Son of God. Jesus is the Son of God. And in precise analogy, the bread does not merely signify the body of Christ. The bread is the body of Christ. Now, how this can be true, of course, is a Uh, divine mystery. Uh, It's a wonder. Uh, To use the old-fashioned language, it's a miracle. That simply has to be said. The Spirit, the Holy Spirit, is the one who unifies the sign and the things signified for faith to its blessing and for unfaith to its, well, as Paul says in 1 Corinthians uh, 12, to its detriment, to its poisoning, actually.
0: So two things to draw out of it is one is that asserting the identity of sign and thing signified in a theological sense is not to deny the signification aspect of it, that the bread also reminds us as it's supposed to of Jesus' Last Supper. It is bread. There is supposed to be some sort of visible analogy between bread and body and wine and blood. None of that is actually under dispute in this view. The disputed part then is, is when the the Holy Spirit brings the two together. And then in that case, you would say it's important that this is not a willy-nilly unification, but it is under, let's say, precise circumstances and for precise reasons that the Holy Spirit does, in fact, unite the sign and the thing signified.
1: Exactly. And I think some some self-proclaimed authentic Lutherans are so emphatic on the Identity of the sign and the thing signified that they make the signification irrelevant. As I remember, an old friend of mine, a a strong uh, evangelical Catholic, who was using white wine in the chalice, which offended congregants who wanted to see red wine. Remind right, them of right. blood, of blood, right. and he said in a very haughty way to the layperson, "It does not have to look like the blood of Christ; it is the blood of Christ." <laughs> and I think this this is a you know an over overreaction, I suppose, because the symbolism of the ritual, the performance of the rite, is meaningful. Uh, that's why you know when we talked about baptism, I argued. That if baptism signifies dying with Christ, then we should immerse. That signifies the drowning of the old Adam. And while sprinkling and uh, dipping don't quite get the symbolism right. So I would say the issue was not
0: the it was not the validity or that there's a certain mechanism that has to be met for it to work. That's not the level at which the argument is taking place. But since it is anyway, the dying and rising with Christ or since it is anyway, the truly taking into yourself the body and blood of Christ, then the way in which it happens ought to reflect the reality of what's going on. So also, for instance, not being casual or flippant about the thing
1: yeah and I, I think this is a bugaboo with me uh, there are pastors who are simply who simply seem to be embarrassed by the liturgical role they play uh in preaching and presiding at the service and they're constantly kibitzing uh commenting on the liturgy trying to uh, hype it up make it more meaningful do things to the ritual to make it relevant or something like that the relevance is right there in the meaning of the words. If we would only take them seriously and perform them uh, in faith, believing that the Holy Spirit is the one who signifies the sign and the thing signified, it's not our job as preachers and presiders in the worship service. It's not our job to make it real for people. That's the work of the Spirit. And we serve that work of the Spirit by taking the performance of the Lord's Supper with ser- seriousness and integrity.
0: I mean, I think I found, again, as I've become a, a pastor again in the past two years, that it is a constant question to yourself, the, the person who fulfills the office of the pastor is, do you really believe God is working here? Or is it somehow secretly up to you? Um, or is it, you know, a, a desperate situation and there's no hope at all? I mean, whichever way, whether it's pride or despair, and the constant question, I mean, that comes to me anyway, is, you know, is this God's doing? Um, or am I am I speaking for an absent God? And I think that's really directly relevant to the communion question because it's finally for me the reason why like you know i would with you in the small catechism assert that it is uh, truly christ's body and blood is because if it is not god himself really doing the work of really being present then the whole ministry is just a complete joke and so is the church and there's a lot better ways of spending our time than uh, chasing after uh, um you know uh, shreds of wind bl- blowing by with no impact on anybody's life
1: Right, exactly. That reminds me of Flannery O'Connor, the famous Catholic novelist's comment about the Lord's Supper. uh, When she heard of people who regarded it as nothing but an empty symbol, she said, well, if it's not the body of Christ, then to hell with it.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Absolutely. I mean, uh, but I would say that's like a a sign and a figure of the whole entire Christian enterprise. <laughs> if Christ is not really there in the Lord's Supper, then to hell with the whole religion, as far as I'm concerned. So let's so. start
1: talking about what it means to be really there, Sarah.
0: Okay. Well, so since you brought up Zwingy, let's let's continue on on this line. So the context for this, uh, for listeners who need a little refresher course is that you know when Luther comes in, he starts by criticisms of Roman practice, and I'm sure we'll circle back to those. But as he found in many cases, not just in the case of Zwingli, once he starts offering proposed reforms, a lot of other people start springing up with their own reforms as well. And one of them is Zwingli in Zurich. And Zwingli is a strong advocate of the real absence of Christ, that that is indeed his article of faith, that Jesus really is not there and for him it is you know it's it's the ritual of unity or you know something we do to remember Christ by it's it's a memorial but it's not a presence and the basic argument he makes as you alluded to dad is that um the Lord's Supper only signifies Christ, but it is not Christ himself. And that uh, to talk about Christ being present is just ridiculous. Like, how could he be present? And so Luther, at, at length, um, attacks this argument in his confession concerning Christ's Supper in 1529. And, uh, Dad, I, I don't think we've ever actually talked about this directly. I'll be curious to to hear what you think of his arguments here. But Luther develops um, using philosophy as a tool. Let's say, you know, people always think Luther's super anti-reason. He's not he just wants it used in the right way and in its right place um, he develops three concepts of presence the circumscriptive which means like local presence the way like the barn cat is is there with you and not with me and then what he calls definitive presence which is the way he says for instance a spirit or an angel might fill up a room without being like locally present in one spot in the room like the cat is but throughout the room and then what he calls repletive presence which which is everywhereness, ubiquity, as the, uh, the controversial or um, disputed term came to be. And that is the way God is present repletively everywhere, um, exhausting every nook and cranny and beyond because um, his presence is not actually defined by local space. And so it's on these grounds that he takes issue with Zwingli's whole approach to limiting Christ's presence locally to an address at the right hand of the Father in a distant location called heaven.
1: Yeah, very good summary, Sarah. So Luther goes through these scholastic uh, discussions of various kinds of presence, the three kinds of presence that you've uh, discussed and I think it's important to bear in mind that he uses this philosophy, this scholastic philosophy, hypothetically. Uh, Luther is always very reluctant to theorize about divine ministry as if faith in the m- mystery, the of which we pastors are stewards of the mysteries of God, as if faith in the mystery depended on rational, that is to say, theoretical comprehension of it, how this can possibly be, which is the question that science asks about natural phenomena, but it's a blasphemous question when you ask it about the creator of all the phenomena that science deals with. So it's a kind of a category confusion for Luther. But in any I think, case, he... what, can you
0: just dad just pause for a second and say more about what precisely makes it blasphemous? I don't think that is that is self evident to people now. And I mean, I think of like Bonhoeffer's objection to uh, God of the Gaps type theories that are are trying to to fill in the space. But why why precisely is inquiring the mechanism not a kind of know nothingism? Or I mean, I, I remember being very fed up with people who say, "Oh, it's a mystery." that was like on the near end of doing the hard work rather than the far end of doing the hard work?
1: Yeah, that's a that's an excellent question. Of course, we could spend a whole uh, podcast on miracles and how to interpret biblical miracles. But just uh, let me just say very, very briefly then, that if I could understand God, I would be God. With the creator of all that is not God, my reason reaches its natural, that is to say, ontological limit. And I think Christians want to affirm in faith that never in all eternity will we comprehend God. Gregory of Nyssa called eternity for us creatures something like swimming in an ocean, an infinite ocean that will never be exhausted. So even if you take the word comprehension etymologically in terms of the Latin to to apprehend all the way around the circle from every possible perspective. That would be a comprehensive knowledge, a theoretical grasping of something in its entirety so that I know how it works under all, any and all circumstances. We can't even achieve that with our science. If you ask the physicist, the more we know, the more we know we don't know, and right, so yeah. forth. But yeah, but to think that we could comprehend God uh, is for Luther a blasphemy. It's actually with God the creator, our reason reaches its proper limit and must call a halt at that point. Now. I admit Luther sometimes uses this argument in a way that's obfuscating, that's kicking problems under the rug. He was a man of the 15th century, 16th century, and he was often skeptical of uh, novelties uh, like in astronomy uh, or in even the diso- Columbus's discovery of the new world. He was skeptical about these things because he couldn't verify them in his own experience. But the point here is that he's talking about what are, in principle, natural phenomena that are available to scientific investigation. That's where he draws the line, I think, between right. the two. Right.
0: And so I suppose then we would say even for us to inquire the how of the Lord's Supper is finally simply to miss the point of what the Lord's Supper is about.
1: Yes, that's, and that's also true of the Incarnation. If you ask how it can be that God the son becomes this flesh and blood human being if you ask the how question you're getting you're making a category confusion the proper theological question is not how but who
0: Yeah when people ask me about Jesus DNA I say I don't have an answer just don't don't ask that's <laughs> we're not going to get anywhere on that discussion
1: Right uh, so then coming back then to these three modes of presence that Luther is talking about, I think what the scholasticism obscures somewhat is the New Testament argument which Jesus anticipates in instituting the Lord's Supper of his glorified or risen body. Uh, that uh, his body in its uh, state of humiliation uh, is, is precisely like, a, like unto ours in all things excepting sin. Uh, and so certainly right there at that moment of the Lord's Supper, he is pointing forward to a future state, um, pointing for, anticipating uh, a new state of being, in which his body will be able to be present wherever uh, the community of disciples gathers and recalls uh, his testament that he's uh, now pronouncing, his last will and testament, that this body about to be given on the cross is given for you. This bloodshed is for the new covenant uh, of my disciples and so forth. So it's when we're talking about the real presence of the body of Christ. It should be very clear to us that we're talking about the uh, glorified body of the risen Lord. Uh, Luther mocked the carnal view that Jesus's body is present, as he colorfully put it, like sausage hanging in the butcher shop. <laughs>
0: I remember a, a seminary friend saying that when she first learned about real presence, when she was a little kid, she was very disturbed. Like, would I be getting Jesus' elbow or his earlobe or an even less savory <laughs> part of his body? Eee, that's pretty gross. Wasn't that, isn't that called Capernaitism or like so, something yeah, like that?
1: From from John 6, from the Jews in Capernaum who took offense when Jesus said, unless you eat my body and eat my flesh unless you
0: mash on my flesh with your teeth right yeah right right
1: so you have here this idea that exalted to the right hand of god's power that is to say not to a local place in some heaven above but sharing now participating in the divine omnipotence the glorified body of jesus can and will be present wherever he has promised to be. That's what we're affirming here, Um, and that he is who he is as this crucified and risen body. This crucified and risen body is integral to his identity uh, for us. He cannot be who he is for us, having accomplished by his obedience to death, death on a cross, and his vindication by God on his father on Easter morn. He cannot be who he is apart from this narrative of the way he in his embodiment has passed through the state of humiliation to the state of exaltation.
0: So the presences of Jesus' exalted body that is fully enjoying the divine attributes and is present in keeping with his own promise
1: yeah i would say a little more precisely it's not ubiquitism it's not that simply that the human, the 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 body of christ is ubiquitous that would be to me a, a confusion of uh, natures uh, the monophysite or docetist christology it's it's rather that the person who is the son of god communicates mutually divine and human properties according to his redemptive mission. So this always makes Christ's presence in the Lord's Supper an act of his personal will. Uh, that's why it's a testament, a testimony to his last will, as as it were, uh, in which uh, uh, he has promised of his own free will to be there for his disciples, when they gather together as the church and observe this memorial.
0: So a a standard uh, um, rebuttal one gets is, well, can I just as easily encounter Christ up, you know, hiking in the mountains or on the golf course or meditating quietly in my bedroom on a Sunday morning? And the answer is not this way, not in this particular and unique way that is his promise attached.
1: Yeah, this is, I I think what you have to say here is something like this. You can call on Christ even in the pit of hell. Uh, One of Luther's great uh, commentaries is on the book of Jonah, where he takes Jonah in the belly of the beast sea monster as a figure of hell. And he has the great prayer of Jonah in the belly of the beast uh, as a, a figure for the denizens of hell, crying out to God from the place of abandonment by God. And there they can be heard (laughs) and delivered. Amazing. Yes, can you call upon Christ anywhere? And can he hear you anywhere? Certainly. But that's not where he promises to be present for you as the community of disciples gathered together to be nourished on your pilgrim way.
0: Yeah, the, underneath it is basically the mechanistic question again, not the faith question. It's the same as like, well, God is gracious and wants to save me, so why bother with baptism? Uh, you know, because the the implied um, perspective there is that it's a merely mechanistic rite, And there is certainly uh, a very... Um, powerful stream of Protestantism that has dismissed things like baptism and the Lord's Supper as principally mechanistic rites or their acts of human obedience, but without any divine promise or reality attached to them. And I think, again, this is a place where you'd say from Luther's perspective is this is coming about the whole the whole thing the wrong way. That's not what's going on here. And in, in fact, I think it, it uh, signifies for us, signifies, haha, very strongly the 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 when we we are misunderstanding of what Jesus means when he says, do this in remembrance of me, because in contemporary English remember, and I suppose in uh, 16th century German remember sounded like the, uh, the signifying invocation of an absent person or, you know, God in this case, but in the Hebrew context in which Jesus is doing it, it's actually remembrance is so powerful. It does actually create the reality there. And that's why the children of Israel, for instance, on Passover, you know, they are recreating the escape from Exodus. It's really happening. They're really participating in it.
1: Yeah. Very well said. And very, very, very well said the, uh, the idea, um, that, we, that the Lord's Supper is nothing but an empty ritual, of course, means that you can finally say, is it worth the trouble? And yeah, I can commune with God more closely on the links, driving my, my golf ball right down the middle of the fairway and praise the Lord, I hit a good one, <laughs> you know, <laughs> that kind of thing. Um, no, this this is, when when he says, do this as often, as often as you do it in remembrance of me, the sense is, this is how I want you to remember me. Gather together as the community of my disciples uh, and take the cup and the bread with the blessing, the blessing that's involved in the Eucharistic prayer and the words of institution. And when you do this this way, I promise I will be there for you there for you in my crucified and glorified body uh, for you. Having figured out what the Lord's Supper is, let's go on to talk about how to practice it.
0: We've disposed pretty well, I would say, of the uh, the Zwinglian side of things. Let's just touch briefly on the the two other um, major options there. So Calvin is represented as a sort of mediating position with something like spiritual presence rather mm-hmm. than a pure memorial. So it's like kind of moving in the right direction, but not. Adequate. There were some moves on part of certain of Luther's circle to reach an agreement, but they failed on this particular topic. So I, why don't you talk us through what is the objection to um, Calvin's spiritual presence?
1: Well, I think, first of all, I'd like to affirm some accents on Calvin. Uh, uh, Calvin, he is, he is trying to mediate between Zwingli, uh, b- between Zurich and Wittenberg, between Luther and Zwingli. And he talks about the presence of the Holy Spirit in the Lord's Supper to lift us up to Christ who is in heaven. And now, I don't think that's all bad uh, for two reasons. Calvin is is exegeting uh, Paul's statement, as often as we eat of this bread and drink of this cup, we proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. And so there's a kind of an eschatological orientation to the uh, performance and, and observance of the Lord's Supper. We are not yet in heaven. We are waiting Christ who comes from heaven to deliver us on the last day. And now by faith through this sacrament, the Holy Spirit lifts us up out of our present struggle to give us a glimpse of the glory that is to come. I think that's a legitimate accent uh, and often in merely polemical anti-Calvinism. I think sometimes in the Lutheran tradition, it's just been disregarded. One way to bring this back liturgically is to restore what's called the epiclesis, the invocation of the Holy Spirit uh, in the context of the words of institution, something like a prayer uh, o Holy Spirit, make this bread and wine to be the body and blood of our Lord Jesus Christ, that we might by particip- true participation and it be lifted up uh, to him. So I think that's not all wrong. And I think there are ways to uh, recognize the significance of Calvin's contribution here. Uh, on the other hand, and I think Calvin's position is finally rather incoherent, because he wants to say that real presence cannot be the presence that is identified with the loaf and the cup. Real presence can only be when the believer is elevated up to where Christ really is in glory. And I think for us, the problem with that, as to quote Luther again from the Confession Concerning Christ's Supper, is that it remains the glory of our God, not that he stays in heaven awaiting us to arrive there, but that he comes down from heaven into the depths, into our hands, into our mouths, into our very being. It's the glory of God to condescend, to give, to come to us. And so we wouldn't want uh, to uh, uh, minimize the self-donating aspect of Christ's presence in the Lord's supper in the way that the uh, reformed theory seems to require us to
0: Yeah, I think that I think that's really right that the um the movement is is always always downward towards us it is always the gracious movement of God moving down. Um I one thing I've learned about Japanese is that the word that's translated as please actually it means something more like, make me the recipient of your downward movement. So you're always addressing someone who is above you and asking them to drop down to where you are. Um, And I really like that. And I think that's really kind of captures the whole sense of what's going on here in the gospel itself. It's not, here are the the tools or spiritual stratagems by which you can climb up the ladder into heaven. But here, in fact, is the Lord who has made made a point of coming down to you to be with you. I think Calvin is really, really upset about idolatry, and I mean, hey, with good reason. It's a major biblical theme, but I think Luther's perspective is of course there is going to be idolatry. The Lord is willing to risk idolatry to be put into sinners' hands. And I think in some sense, Calvin and Zwingli just don't, they don't want that to happen. They're so upset by the idolatry that they want to protect God. And I think Luther is more like, God can protect himself. (laughs) You may not be protected from God, but he's going to come down here and and risk the uh, ingestion by the unworthy.
1: Yeah, I think there's always this tension, but it's a biblical tension between the politics and polity of purity on the one side, uh, the um, iconoclastic tendency, uh, and the politics and polity of reconciliation on the other side. And it's one of those tensions between law and gospel that we just have to learn to live with. Um, But you would agree, Sarah, wouldn't you, that when God Uh, in Christ condescends and comes to us in our need and and woe, it's not in order to leave us there, but in order to bring us from there, to deliver us uh, from the dark Egypt of this world, to deliver us from death and grave. Uh, That means to exalt us, to bring us up, uh, 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 to rise finally in glory. So I don't think if you get the sequence right, I think that's the main thing. If you get the sequence right, that God comes to us in our state of humiliation in order to exalt us. If you get that sequence right, then the theme of being lifted up by the Spirit uh, to God and to the anticipation of heaven and the kingdom and so forth... Is proper? Would you agree?
0: Yeah, I, I, yes, I would certainly agree that that God's grace does not intend to leave us as we are, even when it is entirely gracious and not, you know, synergistic or all those things that we Lutherans are so allergic to. I guess it's maybe it's just the language of upward um, sets off my my uh, rapture and tribulation alarm bells. <laughs> like I don't, <laughs> I don't want us to be a rocketed out of here while the earth burns. Um, but I see right. your, I mean, put in eschatological perspective the as long as the redemption of the the whole world is in the, you know the earth uh you know the new heavens and the earth i'm i'm good with that well, let's let's move on just briefly to the contrast between the Lutheran and Catholic position, and just en route to there, I just want to say a brief word. Of course, Pentecostals were not around in the 16th century, um, but uh, in much more recently, like about 10 years or so ago, when I was involved, um, well, I still am, but in a previous sort of round, early round of Lutheran-Pentecostal dialogue. Um, The folks from my institute in Strasbourg were talking to our Pentecostal dialogue partners, um, trying to understand their theology of worship and spiritual gifts and so forth. And we were talking, or I don't think I was there, but uh, the story goes, they were talking about um, the Lord's Supper and our belief in the real presence. And of course, a lot of Pentecostal theology takes its cues from Reformed and Baptist theology. So it's kind of um, uh, reflexively Zwinglian in that respect. And finally, I guess one of our Lutheran team members said, I don't understand. You think the Lord Jesus Christ is present absolutely everywhere, but the bread and the wine. Like what's keeping him (laughs) out of there? (laughs) Apparently at this, the Pentecostals looked at each other and said, oh yeah, you're right. That doesn't make any sense. We should work on that. <laughs> and, uh, with that level of ease they'd i mean uh, you know there uh, there's still certainly plenty of a uh, zwinglians among the pentecostals but i think that's a, a really good insight pentecostalism is so premised on the real presence the true presence of christ among the worshiping assembly um you know if any pentecostals are listening in on this uh, please you you belong on our team anyway <laughs> so uh, so finally, getting down to the, the Lutheran-Catholic debate. So, I mean, Luther starts his Eucharistic controversies actually objecting to a lot of aspects of Roman practice, especially, though he does also go after the doctrine like transubstantiation, and his primary objection is to dogmatize a particular philosophical theory of Christ's presence, which has the same problems of trying to grasp the mechanism like we've already said. Also, he says it just does not add up, uh, if uh, does not fit with Aristotle's philosophy, you can't actually change the substance without the accidents changing as well. So, if you're going to defend it, you have to use good Aristotle, not bad Aristotle. And so, for that reason. <laughs> uh-huh. that- Uh, Now, I think we had, when we were talking about this earlier, you had a different perspective, but it's always been my understanding that so-called consubstantiation is not a good expression for the Lutheran doctrine because it presupposes, again, the use of Aristotelian categories as both necessary to the doctrine and also not really working because Aristotle would not, also not allowed there to be like a dual substance with one set of accidents covering for both. But I, I think you had a different view on that, so... Tell me.
1: Well, yeah, I I think you, you know, actually I I quite agree with how you're framing it for us now. The uh, if, this is a big if, if hypothetically you're going to adopt an Aristotelian framework um, in order to express the real presence, then the Lutheran view could be regarded as consubstantiation, which simply means the two substances together. The bread remains real bread, And the body of Christ remains truly his crucified and glorified body. And they are there together.
0: In with and under, as Luther likes to say. In
1: with and under, yeah. So if you want, and this is a huge if, if you're going to use Aristotelian concepts to express it, I don't have a problem with saying the Lutheran view is consubstantiation. But I think the danger here is that you think in this way that you have a theoretical comprehension of what is essentially a divine mystery. Uh, And mysteries are to be received in reverence and fear, in awe and faith. As such, punct, stop, full stop. Reason cannot comprehend this mystery. It can understand who it is and why it is, but it cannot understand what it is. So I think that's enough said on transubstantiation versus consubstantiation. The far more significant issue for Luther was the marketing of the mass. It's an extension of his polemic against the sale of indulgences, the sale of masses for the living and the dead and so forth and so on. That's what he objects to because that turns the Lord's Supper into a commodity when in fact it is to be clearly exhibited and freely offered because it is the designated vehicle of Christ's self-donation for the faithful, for the disciples.
0: Right. Okay. Um, so then moving on, let's try to take up in our last 20 minutes or so some liturgical questions. So the first one I have, um, this is again a, a Luther-based thing, is the words themselves, um, especially the word covenant or testament. So the the background for this is the word covenant—this th- is my understanding anyway, and especially for the English-speaking worlds, the term covenant— has become so laden with, a, again, a particular um, reformed and kind of spreading out from there some kinds of pietism, some kinds of Baptist layers of meaning. And that the it seems to suggest something like Parity, or if you do your part, God will do His part, or God does His part. Now it's your turn to do your part. And so, even though covenant is a very rich Old Testament expression, though it does, of course, have some conditionality built into it, into the in the Old Testament, its suggestions are so um, put us on too equal a playing field with with Christ, and that's the, some of the concern of it. Now, Luther, for his part, he liked to translate the word. Testament, or you, you, the the Greek word I forget what it is, but uh, and he, his choice was to use something more like testament. And the reason why he thought it was more accurate, furthermore, was because it specifically meant that something that went into effect with death, and because it was like an inheritance, a, like as in last will and testaments, that it was irrevocable. One of the oldest aspects of human law around the world is the will, and the will cannot be altered after the death of the testator. It stands permanently. Somehow this is like one of the deepest base layers of human legal systems. You can't mess around with what dead people have said should be done with their stuff. And so I think for Luther, this more accurately captured the sense of what happens when Christ gives his body and blood in the supper before, in fact, facing his death and dying and then being able to bequeath it to his disciples.
1: So that's an excellent summary of why um, uh, Luther preferred to translate a testament rather than covenant. Um, and it's also a, a witness to the dangers of thinking that the relationship between God and humanity is a reciprocal relationship between equals in a, in a kind of a, a, legal, a legal contract or something like that. It, it under, Testament underscores the unilateral and divine character of the, of the relationship that's being established. I think that's exactly right. But you have to also realize that there's a good. There are several really good nuances to the term covenant, because it's it involves us. It's it's self-involving, um, and the way that comes out in the words of institution are the imperatives. Do this in remembrance of me. There's a command there. There's a, a imperative. Do this, and so in some sense, the Testament's efficaciousness, and I'm going to be a little provocative here, depends on obedience, the obedience of faith to this imperative. Do this in remembrance of me. If we do this in some other way, a way that does not properly remember Christ and his self-giving, or if we neglect to do this at all, what is promised and given in the testament fails to come into effect. It's like leaving a last will and testament that's never opened, never read, and never executed. So I think the word covenant has these resonances, which are salutary reminders, that the church has a mandate, do this in remembrance of me and that the health and well-being of the church depends on the faithful obedience to this mandate.
0: Yeah, I think it's... uh... You, as you say there, it's the question is efficaciousness and therefore implicitly not validity. So it is, is still happening, but whether or not you receive it to your good, to your blessing and to your benefit is uh, in, in part related to your obedience to the word of God. We would say, of course, that it is the word of God that is calling out to you and making anything remotely resembling obedience possible. I think there is a certain kind of a uh, excessive allergy to anything in the imperative voice. Um, among certain kinds of Lutherans. And let's just say that the commands like to be baptized or to do this in the remembrance of me, as Christ says to us, is not the kind of burdensome, oppressive law that we should be seeking to deliver ourselves and other people from. Quite the contrary. This is exactly the kind of law that we should be obeying because it's precisely a law that commands more gospel.
1: It's a gospel imperative. (laughs)
0: Right. There can be such a thing.
1: (laughs) uh, That's right. And, and, you know, just think uh, hypothetically, think about contrafactuals here. What if I said, hey, we're having pizza and beer tonight. Why not say a prayer and call it the Lord's Supper? Would that be the Lord's Supper?
0: Yeah. So, Dad, I don't think I've ever told you this, but when I was maybe 10 or 11, we were at church and there was something going on. I don't know if it was a meeting or a service upstairs. It couldn't have been a service because I was always in them and usually the accolades. But I don't know what got into me other than the devil. But um, I went into one of the Sunday school rooms with some other kids with some Hawaiian punch and NECA wafers, and I confected a false and demonic Lord's Supper um, (laughs) (laughs) candy. I don't think I've ever admitted this to anyone before, and now it's out there for for the world um, I think I somehow knew what I was doing was not right but I got caught up the way kids often do in the moment and you know obviously the the mimicry of uh, doing what dad does but um, that was not the Lord's body and blood I am I say with utter assurance for so many reasons not least of all that Neco wafers uh, repel Christ's true presence <laughs>
1: Well, see, see and uh, you know, my friend David Diego, the uh, excellent theologian who teaches now at the NAL uh, North American Lutheran Seminary, has pointed out uh, that this do this in remembrance of me includes rather specific instructions: take a loaf, take a cup of wine, say the blessing, and then, uh, in all, in the narrative context provided by the words of institution. And if we fail to do these things, it's an open question whether it actually is the Lord's Supper or whether we've turned it into my supper or your supper or some other kind of supper. I think that's a, that's a rather important question as we turn to how to practice the Lord's Supper.
0: Right. And we should, again, say this is not a mechanistic concern. Like, if you don't do everything just right, then Jesus refuses to be there. <laughs> this is, as, as I think you, you often say, and I really like this, this is a matter of intending orthodoxy or intending orthopraxy, is desiring to do it as Jesus does it. So to get us into the practice question, for instance, um, in my uh, meetings with Lutherans from around the world, I've occasionally run across people who come from countries and churches that are poor enough, um, or they are in Islamic settings where access to wine is especially limited, that having the the blood of Christ be provided in the form of the fruit of the vine, uh, whether as juice or wine, is simply not an option. And so uh, I think, I don't know, like a a West African told me once about they have a a red colored leaf that they will um, soak in water so that its color leaches out and then they'll add some sugar to it. And that's what they will use for um, the Lord's blood because wine is simply unavailable and unaffordable for them. Now, I would say that doing this as a, as a um, fun little exercise in diversity in a place where wine is easily available is missing the point. But I would not say that the Lord refuses to be present to West Africans who literally cannot afford a bottle of wine or can't get at one because the laws of their government prohibit it. But I'm curious to hear your thoughts about that.
1: Yeah, I think that there's always, there's always pastoral freedom. In situations of necessity or emergency, uh, to err on the side of communicating God's gifts. Uh, this, what is true in an emergency, of course, should not become then uh, some kind of new norm. That uh, uh, rather, the it's in light of the norm, obedience to Christ's mandate. Uh, that one, if one is forced by necessity to deviate uh, from it in some of these uh, details, uh, then one openly acknowledges we are erring uh, uh, on the side of grace pastorally in a situation of necessity or emergency. That We have that freedom and we shouldn't have compunctions about it, but we shouldn't abuse that freedom to abolish the norm, which is obedience to the mandate of Christ.
0: And I think that, again, is is actively resisting the mechanistic thinking about getting it, you know, just so, um, you know, flipping the switch so that we get the desired result as if God were a jukebox of some kind or a, a slot machine.
1: Right, right.
0: All right. Well, what particular liturgical issues did you want to bring up in our last ten minutes here?
1: Well, um, uh, well, uh, we have a note here to talk about wafers uh, versus a loaf of leaven uh, uh, leavened bread. Or unleavened um, it's inter- bread, presumably. Uh, yeah, the uh, it's interesting to know historically where wafers come from. The uh, superstitious folks in the Middle Ages would often, in the beginning, hold their hand out to take the bread. And then instead of consuming it, they'd sneak it into their pockets and take it home and create a little shrine at home uh, to worship the body of Christ. And as this practice became common, two things happened. The tabernacle was created so that people could come to the church and adore the body of christ in the tabernacle and the wafers were invented and people were taught to stick out their tongue so the priest could put the wafer right on the tongue and watch it melt (laughs) so they couldn't sneak it out of their mouths and take it home uh, for private shrines and so forth Uh, well there's a lot of such curiosities historically and behind our liturgical practices and so forth. Uh, I think that here again, the signification matters. It doesn't make the, uh, the bread and the wine the body of Christ, but it properly symbolizes that which it is, the body and blood of Christ. And so Paul speaks about, though we are many, we all partake of the one bread and so become one body of Christ. That's his reasoning. So I think it's important symbolically that there be one loaf that is held up and signified in the words of institution. This loaf is my body. Not any old loaf on the wonder bread on the shelf in the grocery store, but in this context, in this gathering of the disciples, in this performance of Christ's word of promise, this loaf is singled out. And this loaf is going to then be broken and distributed to the many so that through their consumption of it, they are made and refashioned again and again as the living body of Christ.
0: Yeah, I, I agree entirely with the uh the signification being much preferable that way. I've also experienced lots of churches where the the reality makes it n- next to impossible if, or at least very impracticable. I mean, the same thing for shot glasses. I hate shot glasses. And let me just say, folks out there, you don't need to knock your head back like you are downing vodka. You can tip the <laughs> cup and not your head and all the liquid will still go into your mouth. OK, it's not that hard. <laughs> But (laughs) I just... uh, Visually, I hate them and people's shot glass tendency of knocking it back is horrible to me. But on the other hand, you know, I am now living in the biggest city in the world that's facing a pandemic. There are certainly reasons to be concerned about everybody, you know, putting their saliva slobbery lips on the same cup and taking a slurp and backwashing, um, even if symbolically symbolically it's good, uh, um, epidemiologically, maybe not. And, you know, I think it just keeps some people away because they're grossed out which is unfortunate. I did hear or read recently that the Center for Disease Control does not have on record a single case of anyone ever getting sick from Communion Cup, but, you know, you don't want to be the church where that's disproved for the first time either.
1: Right, right. Yeah, we agree on that. Let's go on to other issues.
0: Okay, um, let's see. Oh, so you mentioned tabernacling. I'd be curious what you think about that. My my feeling tends to be is you should do what Jesus said, which is to take and eat and to take and drink and not use for other purposes. But I will make this one exception for tabernacling, which is that um, when Andrew and I were in Italy about 10 years ago, we ended up sp- sp- spending the night at a convent of Sacramentine Sisters, which we'd never heard of before. But their uh, like mandate or vocation was basically to realize that if Jesus was really truly bodily present in the tabernacled bread and wine, then he was lonely if nobody was there keeping him company. And so as a a (laughs) convent, they are with Jesus 24-7. There is always someone there next to the tabernacle praying and keeping him company. So my feeling is if you're going to tabernacle, then don't leave Jesus locked up in a box lonely. Keep him company all the time. Other than that, I would say probably just eat and drink it up. But uh, you can accuse me of being too Protestant. Yeah, I I, I I think
1: it's given for us to eat and drink. That's the mandate. And provided provided that mandate is observed, I have no objection to pious practices like tabernacling and adoration and things like that, Um, as long as they're not dogmatized or made binding on conscience
0: or I, I guess my maybe my um experience is more of of protestant saying can you handle that look how catholic i am and i think that's kind of silly too you know like it's it's not to prove a point
1: okay let's get to the really one that's caused so much controversy the eucharistic prayer
0: okay you you make your case for it and i'll make a case against it how about
1: okay um The Eucharistic prayer is modeled on many of the Psalms. If you look at the Psalms of Israel, they are addressed to God, but in addressing God, they praise God by recounting God's mighty acts of deliverance. So the idea that you cannot both recite the narrative of what, a promissory narrative of what God has done for us in the context of offering praise and thanksgiving to God, it seems to me is unbiblical. It simply is the case, and the Psalms are the model here, that one can address God by recounting his works of salvation, which is at the same time a narrative addressed uh, uh, not only to God, but to the congregation. Uh, So that would be, first of all, what I would want to say, is that there's a strong biblical model in the Psalms for the Eucharistic prayer. Secondly, it has to do with this theme that I affirmed from Calvin, that Christ's benefits, Christ's gift to us are not merely negative gifts, taking away sin, taking away death, but positive gifts, giving us his spirit, giving us faith, giving us eternal life, giving us his very self so that when we are united to Christ, the gifts are not merely the ones that take away our deficits. They're also the ones that communicate to us his positives, his own filial relationship to God, so that united with Christ, we render the praise and thanksgiving to his Father in the power of the Spirit. I think all of that is captured in a Eucharistic prayer, Provided it's clear that in this self-offering in union with Christ, we are not trying to appease an angry God by re-sacrificing Christ to him. That was what I think the Lutheran confession absolutely definitively has to reject. We are addressing the God who has made reconciliation to us, in and through Christ and by his spirit now united with Christ by eating his body and blood anew united together as his body, we participate now in the power of the spirit in Christ's own self-offering to the Father. That's what I would say about it.
0: Okay, well, I'm I'm going to be disappointingly not nearly as annoyed by that as probably our listeners would enjoy hearing us really quarrel about. But um, so but um l- let me say this. So just to to fill out the picture here, so there's been a a question about whether or not there should be any kind of liturgical prayers preceding the words of institution at all. And I have to say the most I ever experienced the words of institution as mechanistic magic words was when I one time went to a Lutheran service where it literally went from the offertory to in the night in which he was betrayed, like no lead up, no nothing. And I guess the idea was to avoid this, you know, fear of canon of the mass, Eucharistic prayer or whatever, but it, it like completely backfired for me. So I certainly not a an advocate of that strategy. I don't understand what's going on there at all. It seems very ideological to me to just kind of bomb you with the words of institution with no buildup. So yeah, I would I would entirely agree with what you say about the the, you know, psalms as as part of prayer is narrating back to God. I guess uh, what I would say and it set uh, here are several things together which will lead up to my proposal. One is that Luther's objection was always seeing what he called the canon of the mass was the aspect of the Eucharistic prayer with an embedding of the words of institution that seemed to suggest that the direction of the sacrament was from us to God. And you can add then therefore an implied angry God or something, but that ultimately that the Lord's supper is our gift up to God in order that basically Jesus gets zapped instead of us. And for Luther, the point is that the sacrament is the gift of God to us, And so in his, um, and, and this is not new with him, actually, already you can see in Ambrose and on the West and John Chrysostom in the East, as they were the ones who are already recognizing and asserting that the words of institution are somehow categorically different from all the other words of the Eucharistic liturgies, which, of course, were very well developed at that time. And, and they are the ones who start this idea of, uh, you know, effective words, the words of institution as actually being the confecting words. But for them, of course, it's not separated out from the prayers. So the way Luther embodies this in his in his uh, German mass as a revision, a liturgical revision, is he actually, he has prayers, but then the prayers see, I mean, they end and they, they conclude. And what happens is that the tone in which the words of institution are chanted, because pretty much everything was chanted, is the same tone that was used uniquely for the gospel proclamation earlier in the service. So what you heard, embodied was the same musical tone for Christ's address in the gospel and then Christ's address in the words of institution. So the parallelism was musically unmistakable. And that's how he clarified that what the pastor is doing is, you know, get, offering the voice that Jesus can address you directly and offer to you the sacra- the sacrament. And so what I would say then is uh, you can pray as long as you want, Eucharistically, and the word Eucharist literally means Thanksgiving. So yes, you know it's coming. It's not like it's a surprise that the words of institution are coming, that you should be caught off guard by them. You know, give your prayer, your Eucharistic prayers up to God. Just end with an amen. That's all you have to do. Just end. End with an amen, and then let the words of institution be the gospel address from Christ to you, the whole congregation. And of course, for Luther, having a congregation was an absolutely necessary part of the Lord's Supper. There had to actually be someone to whom it was being given. Um, and then you're good, you know. And then you can pray lots afterwards too. Keep eucharisting afterwards. So yeah, that would be <laughs> that would be my my case for resolving some of this. I think uh, fruitless. Um, either extreme drawing it out. I actually did, Dad, one time I I was in um, a service of a different confessional tradition that had the words of institution embedded in the Eucharistic prayer. And the presider actually stumbled because it was clear they couldn't remember who they were talking to. Were they still talking to the (laughs) Father or were they talking to us now? And I think that's actually an important aspect of the words of institution, that it's not just it's not only a narrative, like the Psalms are narratives back to God, but it's actually the direct address of Jesus to the congregation. And I think there is something about that that sets them out. But um, I, I like the the prayers, the Eucharistic prayer framework all around it, instead of just, again, the bomb dropping of in the night in which he was betrayed. Can you handle that? Right,
1: right. <laughs> good, Sarah. Yeah, that's very good. And I think, you know, we're probably converging in the from uh, towards the same point. Um, I think One of the things to be born, all these things have a history, and where you became aware of these things and where I became aware of these things are separated by a generation. When I was growing up, all the altars in Lutheran churches were up against the wall, and when the pastor said the words of institution, he had his back to the congregation and was facing facing the altar. And that's a, you know, a remnant, uh, a liturgical remnant of the sacrifice of the mass that was preserved in spite of the theology telling us that the words of institution are a narrative promise addressed to the gathered faithful. So these kinds of contradictions uh, are embedded in history and have to be uh, disentangled. Uh, I would just say the move towards a freestanding altar in which th- when we pray, the, uh, when the presiding minister prays, he's still facing the congregation, even though he's addressing God. Uh, so some of this, I think, is, is actually very good, because it's moving us away from a purely Unitarian vertical view of God as up there or, or out there somewhere, to a more Trinitarian view, in which prayers addressed to the Father uh, are addressed in union with the Son, right here uh, on the earth, in the power of the Spirit, lifting us up to union with Christ and in Christ's self-offering to his Father. That's a far more Trinitarian understanding of the dynamics of prayer than this either uh, to God or to us, because the God, the Holy Spirit, is there in us as we are united with Christ and in Christ's own self-offering t- to the heavenly Father,
0: as long as it does not overly uh, conflate uh, our action with God's, which you know is again every Lutheran's paranoia. That's okay by me.
1: What if our action? What if our actions are no longer our actions, but our actions by the grace and gift and power of the Holy Spirit? Isn't that? the grace of faith, the grace to receive the grace of Christ, isn't that just as gracious?
0: Uh, Yeah, I I think it's still just a question of the way it is liturgically enacted and that people actually grasp that it is the Holy Spirit uh, doing this in and with them. And not again, as I said earlier with the problem of the word covenant, is that kind of reciprocity or I, I don't I don't know exactly how to solve the problem but that would be my only reserve
1: excellent excellent point and that's why we do these podcasts because no liturgy speaks for itself liturgy needs to be interpreted and taught constantly so that people understand what the actions are and why they are the way they are and so forth if 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 we simply rely on the liturgy to be self-interpreting, we're going to have as many different understandings as there are people in the pews. Pastors have to teach as well as preach and preside.
0: Yeah. And that's to the people who already show up every Sunday. So how much more to the people who are new to it? All right. Good. Well, we covered a lot of ground there and, you know, there's still lots more. We could talk about communion, but we'll save that for another year, I think. Uh, Next time on the show, we will be talking about the resurrection.